Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. So if you want to ask me a question, please send it to me by that email address. If you send it to me by some other means, text me or uh, drop me a question on Facebook or you know, message me with a question or tweet me a question, there's zero guarantee that it's going to make it in my queue. But if you email me, it will. Uh, also, of course, my Patreon followers can, of course, uh, supporters can uh, message me through Patreon as well. That's completely fine with me. Uh, so, hey, everybody. I took off uh, the, we did not do our Critical Conversations show this week and the podcast. I kind of needed a day. I, um, you know, just that happens from time to time. And you guys are amazingly understanding with that. So thank you very much for your uh, positive comments and feedback on my my messaging about that on Friday. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to beef up this show a little bit <laughs> and talk about some things this week uh, and answering these questions here that we've got. We've got some really good ones. And I, um, I just want to say that the recovery process that I have been sort of talking through and documenting in a way um, and very informal process here on my channel, and yet that is basically what I've been doing over all these years. And, um, you know, we talk about onion layers and, and, and things kind of coming off and bubbling up to the surface from deep down in the psyche and how as you go through this process and examine and introspect and think and look and learn and, and try to, um, you know, figure things out and move forward, um, a, a lot of, there's a lot of layers, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes up and it is really interesting how you can kind of run this process and, and it goes, it goes up and down and back and forth and, and there's a lot of emotion to it, a lot. Um, the thing that gives me some degree of comfort about emotion is that while I might be experiencing a completely horrible emotion in the moment, and it really sucks to have to experience that sort of thing, as all of us know. <laughs> it's not like I'm special. Um, the thing that does keep it, you know, keep me going or, 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 or provide me with some degree of, of help in those moments is knowing that emotions are temporary. And if you just wait, it's like Florida weather, you know, give it 15 minutes and, and it'll change. <laughs> and, um, and that is, that is true. That is a truth. And we, um, we, you know, anyway, that is, um, that's helpful to know. <laughs> okay. So let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Steph CLO, I find it fascinating that at least a dozen times in my Sea Org career in Canada and a bit in Los Angeles, I looked from the top floor of the building I was in and looking down on people and thought, wow, I'd like to be like them one day and be free. I was quite sad during those times and felt helpless when really I just needed to put on my sneakers and walk out and get on a bus. Have you ever had those kind of moments? More importantly, how did you deal with the regret when you got out? I still look at it and wonder, why did it take so many years? I feel like a dodo bird sometimes, gotta tell ya. My wife now tells me I am too decisive sometimes, lol. I just don't waste time anymore. All right, thank you very much for this question. And yeah, I get it. Oh man, do I get it. 
you were in the Sea Org, and of course, so was I. And I think all of us had those moments of contemplating, what the hell am I doing here? I'm not happy. This isn't fun. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm, you know, I, I don't even understand how this is happening, et cetera, as, as to some of the experiences that we had. If you were even allowed time to think at all, because those moments, at least for me, and, and I imagine probably for you in some regard, are few and far between because you run so ragged all the time that you don't have a lot of downtime to think. And that's part of the point, part of the problem, is it's, a, is it's a, an environment that, is, um, that pushes back and, and tries actively to prevent you from thinking too much. You know, the, the, it looks like you've had a little bit too much to think, <laughs> as that famous thought police meme uh, goes. And that Scientology in a, the bubble world of the Sea Org, especially, in a nutshell. And uh, they, that is one of the reasons why it's kept at this emergency frantic pace all the time, is so people are only able to focus on the problem right in front of their face and not think about other things like w w the kind of life they could be having if this wasn't happening to them. Now, as far as, um, you know, and I definitely get feeling sad and about those times, looking back on that, I want to point out a few things. And this is where the, uh, for me, this is where the educational component of recovery is really, really important. You can go get therapy, and, and, you, and, and people should, and, and, and counseling or talk to somebody, have somebody listen to you, relate your experiences. But there's also the matter of learning about what was going on. And in this case, I'm thinking specifically about learned helplessness. This is a, this is a, a phrase in, science, in, in psychology, sorry, um, which is a, a kind of trauma bonding. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a result of that. It's, it's where you are in an abusive situation and you just, you know, there's so much abuse rain down that you, that you get into a situation where you know there is nothing you're really going to be able to do about this and you really do stop trying. There's more to it than that. I'm being kind of simple Simon reductionist here, but I've done a whole podcast on the subject of learned helplessness with Rachel Bernstein, and I will link to that in the show notes, and I'm pointing downwards to the show notes on the YouTube channel here, so you can check that out, because um, that's just one component, one of many components of what was done to us or what condition we were put in psychologically as a result of the abuse that was rained down on us. Um, and also, of course, uh, you know, that we rained down on other people, too, as Sea Org members. That has, that's part of the picture as well. You know, being a victim is one thing, being a victimizer is another, and these two things in the world of Scientology, you know, they, they go back and forth. One, you, you do, you are both, you hold both of those roles, and the both roles bring their own baggage with them in terms of psychological consequences. Um, okay. Now, the other thing that I want to point out is, um, in addition to the learned helplessness, and, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to diagnose you, but... When you talk about the um, sadness and the helplessness, that's what comes to mind for me because I, of course, experienced that same thing or something I would approximate and describe that way. So that's why the learned helplessness came to mind for me and is something to learn about. Trauma bonding is, is not just somebody abusing you and abusing you and abusing you and abusing you and you just put up with it all the time. It's worse because the abuse 
is rotated or 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 there's a there's also instances or moments of of assistance and help and love and caring and compassion which confuses the hell out of you because when your abuser is caring about you you know it gets a little weird you're here you know but at the same time the abuser is usually in some kind of an authority position so we're kind of stuck in that relationship but you know you can learn to just kind of hate or not like or avoid or not be around this abusive personality but when they flip the script on you and reward you and help you and try to give you assistance from time to time it's like wait a minute what and and it and it, of course you have the relationship in the first place because the authority figure or the the person is some you know somebody who matters to you or is important to you and um and then they're abusing you and then it's weird and then they're helping you and then it's weirder right and this cycle it's a cyclic thing and that's kind of it's like a magnet that's that's constantly turning you know you're you're the magnet that stays put and it's rotating so it it pulls you in it pushes you away it pulls you in it pushes you away and that behavior over over time is can create a what we call a trauma bonding situation it really messes with people's sense of of agency and authority and self and and the relationship and it, it's very very confusing and ultimately traumatizing to people who are who are stuck in those situations and the sea org is without question one of those kind of situations for a lot of people and that's just one aspect of what goes on there. So I point this up as something to learn and know about because it helps explain some of what our feelings are about and where they're coming from. And some of the stuff we have to learn how to deal with. Um, and this can come up in counseling, but if, you know, for me, it's just kind of come up through education and, and probably, you know, sort of thinking about it and learning about it and, and, and talking about it. And, and that alone has been cathartic. So you don't have to go see a counselor to get this sorted out to some degree, although I think professional help would be necessary if you really wanted to go all the way in on, on exploring that and dealing with it. Um, now, there were some other things here. You asked, you know, have I ever had those kind of moments? Absolutely, I did in the Sea Org. Many, many, many times I had doubts and reservations and problems and wanted to leave and was ready to get up and go. And in fact, a couple times when my one time when I was a Scientology staff member and another time when I was a Sea Org member, I did up and go. And, you know, in retrospect, stupidly, I came back <laughs> both times. Um, you know, I had opportunities there. And, um, and I did not really take advantage of them because at the time I wasn't ready to. And I say that as the product of a lot of contemplation and thinking and, and looking at those times. And of course, I even talked to my own mom um, about the time that I blew the Sea Org because I contacted her back then when, when I did that. I was on the phone with her. And she had an opportunity to get me out of the Sea Org and out of Scientology. And I had an opportunity there to, to take that. And neither one of us did it because, you know, my mom was too afraid that I might change my mind and disconnect from her if she, you know, encouraged me too much. She's not a bad person at all. And she's not a stupid person, but she was afraid that she would lose me forever. And it was a valid fear. Uh, I just wasn't ready yet. 
I was married. I still had the wife in the Sea Org. I still loved her. I, I was very, very, very devoted to that. And I felt an obligation and, and responsibility to do what I said I would do and, and keep my word. So, so that's, what, that's what drew me back to the Sea Org. Um, you know, but I look back on that now and I very clearly see that those were opportunities that I could have and, and really should have taken advantage of. But here's how I've come to learn to live with that. And I, this is the best advice I know how to give on this. Two things. One, hindsight bias. What you know now is not what you knew then. And to hold yourself accountable now for that time and what you did not knowing all the things you know now, right? To hold yourself responsible for that. I should have known better. I should have done this. How could I have not seen? That's hindsight bias. It's a logical fallacy. It's fallacious, error-ridden thinking. It's not straight, logical, rational thinking. But we do it to ourselves. We run those guilt trips on ourselves all the time. We know something now. Ah, I should have known it then. What a fool I was. I'm so stupid. I'm so ignorant. And people can really, really come down on themselves. I'm not even joking. This is really bad. And it's really wrong. It is not right that people do this to themselves. You made the best decisions you knew how to make at the time. Using the information and the emotional components and the life experiences that you had up until that moment... Your decision-making process was the best it was going to be. And, you know, the reasons that you did what you did are not just exclusively with you. You were surrounded by other people who were influencing you too. You were influencing them. They were influencing you. There were circumstances. It's not a matter of blame, shame, and regret to you or to them it's merely a recognition that the circumstances were what they were, and there was no way at all for you to be able to do anything other than what you did. That's why you did it. So don't kill yourself over it now. Don't, don't beat yourself up about it now. Don't do something, you know, don't, don't be like that about yourself. You have choices now. You didn't have as many choices then. One of the choices that you have now is to spend time looking back on the things you could have done differently. It's probably not the most constructive use of your time because, and, and everything I'm saying right now are all the things I have thought through and that I have told myself and talked to myself about to figure my way through this. So I'm talking to you, but you know, this is me talking to me as well when I'm, you know, when I'm figuring this out. Um, so the hindsight bias thing is, is a thing. Okay. And, and it's not really cool to run that on yourself. Um, the other thing is that we have no ability now and probably ever to go back and change a goddamn thing about what happened to us or about what we did. There is no way to go back and rewrite the past period. End of story. It's done. All we can do is move forward. So we need to move forward in the most positive and informed and, you know, like rational way that we can and make each new moment of your life something purposeful and meaningful and important to you because that 
is what you can do something about, the future. The present is where you act now to create your future. The past is a done deal. You can't do anything about it. Not in terms of changing it. And you can't go back and rework your decision-making process or anything like that. All you can do is do now better than what you did before. And you're going to find a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, that you're going to look back on what you're doing now and go, oh, my God, why didn't I? How couldn't I? You know, it's a constant process with us. You can learn from your past mistakes, and that kind of review and examination and introspection can be very valuable. I, I mean, obviously, I do it all the damn time. <laughs> but regret, beating yourself up about it, no, you don't have to do that. And that is a choice that you have. The little voices in your head might be a little out of control from time to time. So I get that. But how you act, what you do now, you get the point. Okay. Um, and this isn't meant to, um, you know, beat anybody up. It's, it, you know, it's, it's the exact opposite. I'm trying to, I hope, deliver what is, you know, what should be or, or should be thought of as, um, you know, an empowering message here, right? It's uh, is, is you are in the driver's seat when it comes to your future. Not with everything, obviously, you know, with all the circumstances of your life, but as much as you can be now that you're out of Scientology. So anyway, I hope those thoughts are helpful, you know, and useful advice, because that's really about the best I can give you on that. Steve Wood. A couple of weeks ago, I read on Tony Ortega's underground bunker site about Scientology making a huge announcement that five people, yes, that's five, had finally become clear. The entire concept of Scientology is to ultimately clear the entire planet. But let's take a look at this. The current population of Clearwater is 118,000 people. It would take just under 47 years to clear the entire population of Clearwater at that rate. There are 7.8 billion people, increasing by 83 million a year. Has it not occurred to the Scientologists that this endeavor is completely and utterly unattainable? I understand the Sea Org staff are very isolated, but surely the public Scientologists who have outside lives can see the math on this. Do they not stop to wonder about this ridiculous situation? Thanks for the question, Steve. And um, boy, I know the Scientology mindset really is confusing, isn't it? It really is. And it's hard to get across. Um, so let me simply say, you know, in answer, in short answer to your question, do they not stop to wonder about this ridiculous situation? No, they don't. And I've actually got personal experience on this. So this is a little bit fun. Um, when I was in the later years of my Sea Org time, basically about the last year. In fact, I think it was, I think it was after I read or around the time that I read Debbie Cook's email. So this would have been um, New Year's between around the December, November, December time period of 2011, 2012, that switchover. So sometime in late 2011, I think it was, I started thinking about this question. Because it, it occurred to me, I, here I am, a Sea Org member, I'm out in Minnesota, I'm on this mission, you know, with these other Sea Org members, we're supposed to be expanding Scientology, we have a 
three or 88,000 square foot building to fill of, of hundreds of chairs in the course rooms that are empty, 20 or 25 auditing rooms, and there's like one and a half auditors or something. I mean, it was a pretty ridiculous situation. And we were wandering the halls of this great, big, huge fishbowl building and we, with nothing, nothing really happening. And I started thinking about this. I started thinking about a couple things. How do we pay the staff was, my, was, was front and center on my mind. And I couldn't think my way through that one because the existing finance system of the orgs was all about sending all the money up you know, to the top. And there wasn't a whole lot of surplus left over for staff pay. So that problem was pretty unsolvable. And then I started thinking about the numbers in terms of clearing this area and what was it going to take and what pace were we moving at? And, you know, the numbers don't lie and they communicate pretty quickly that, excuse me, that this is a pretty ridiculous situation. Here we are bragging about making five, ten, you know, even in Los Angeles during our peaks, you know, we're making 20, 30 OTs a week, OT level completions at the at the advanced org in Los Angeles. Let's say Clearwater is doubling that, you know, so we're doing 30, they're doing 60, let's say, a week. I mean, even with numbers like that. It's still, as you have pointed out in your question, you know, thousands of years you know, before we even approach the current population of this planet being cleared. So what gives with this, right? Well, it started dawning on me that this was, wait a minute, hasn't anybody ever thought about this? And I went around because you know how I am. <laughs> and I started asking some Scientologists about it, public staff Right. Most I think it was actually the staff and other Sea Org members. It wasn't the public. Um, and I said, you know, wow, these numbers. I mean, we've got I mean, has anybody ever thought about this? This is how I talked. I said, has anybody ever thought about like like there's a lot of people on this planet. There's a lot of people in this city. You know, like we're not even remotely hitting any targets that are going to clear this city or this planet this lifetime. I mean, these events that we go to are nice and we're shown all these people doing all these things. But if, you know, if we don't start getting thousands of people at a shot doing Scientology and finishing services in every organization around the world, if we don't have thousands of completions a week you know what are we doing and 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 clearwater isn't even remotely close to the numbers that we need to be hitting in order to make even the smallest dent on this population so i was looking at the problem dead on just like you are right now steve and so i can tell you that yes some scientologists do think about this because i did as a hardcore sea org member i did and you know the responses I got from every single person I approached and talked to about this? Yeah, it's not a big deal. We're, we're handling it. We're doing it. Don't worry about it. No, I, I, no, I don't think about that. No, we're just going to do it. No, it's happening. What are you talking about? Those were the responses I got to, to my questions. And I didn't press the issue because 
you know, I'm in a snitch culture environment and I didn't want to get in more trouble, right? So the last thing I was going to do was, was go make waves. Now, I didn't, you know, I didn't huddle and whisper these conversations, but I wasn't being like, hey, oh my God, this is a failed mission. We're, we're you know, this we're, we're, there's no way we're going to uh, clear the planet. This is a pipe dream. I, I wasn't running around like that either. Um, you know, so I was being cautious, but not one person I asked, and I probably asked about five or six people, I think, um, about it. So hardly a, you know, wide survey sample, but it was one for one, not one other person I asked had it even remotely on their mind, had never thought about it was happy to accept the mantras and the speeches and the events and the statistics and go, yeah, we're doing it. It's right around the corner. We're almost there. We're just about to make it. We're going to hit that make break point where it's going to mushroom. It's going to, here's the view. It's like the, it's like blowing up a balloon. You know, you're blowing on it and you're blowing on it and then boom. And then suddenly it, 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 it goes, right? It goes big. Um, you know, that, that struggle moment, right? It's like that. Scientologists all think we're right at that moment where it's about to just boom and take off. Well, I was telling myself those exact words for 27 years. It never took off. <laughs> so... So it was really only at the bitter end that I even begun to start asking those questions. And I was already in a disaffected state of mind towards the organization. And that's the only thing that really allowed me to be at all skeptical about the subject because my extremism had had retreated, it had come, you know, had reduced a bit. So that's that's basically my best answer to the question based on my own personal experiences. They don't think about it at all. And as far as, you know, my commentary about why, I, you know, my conjecture in terms of, um, you know, my psychology knowledge and critical thinking knowledge is that they can't let themselves think about it. You know, the thought might enter every single Scientologist's head, but then the shields come down and they, no, I can't, I, I can't think about that. That's just, that's negativity. That's N theta. That's bad. I shouldn't be thinking that way. And so they stop themselves, they police it, because they realize that they're heading down a negative road. And this is what I mean when I'm talking about how when you are in a, a hardcore extremist belief mindset where you must accept this thing as true or else, well, you can't let yourself think critically about the subject. You just can't. Because those kind of questions will lead to more questions, and then the dam breaks, and then you're having an identity crisis and problems and issues, and your group doesn't like you anymore, and you, there's threats, and, and, and you know there's a lot of issues. Lots and lots and lots of reasons to be very motivated to not go there. You're happier, you know, everybody else is happier with you. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. Right? That's, the, that's the default position for a lot of people already. They don't, they don't want to make waves. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to ask too many questions. They don't want to make trouble. And then you add the cult influence on top of that. I'm just talking about in life on any subject, that's how they are. And then you add all the cultic influence on top of that. 
right? Even the strongest personality is going to wither under the under deep, heavy cultic influence. But your regular Joe person, I stand a chance, right? They're just not going to think about it. And it's easy to not think about stuff if you're not a thinking, you know, skeptical, critical thinking kind of person. And this is why we have to teach it. <laughs> because it's not native to us. It's not natural for us to think critically or skeptically. So that's my answer to that. And I hope it... Uh, Bring some, you know, shines a little bit of light on that situation for you, Steve. Bill Stamas. I've heard you, as well as others, speak about the consequences, quote-unquote, for people who are not properly prepared to see the OT3 material. Leah said something about them getting sick and dying, and I believe you used the term freewheeling. Do you think Scientologists are doubling down on this since the material is becoming more and more available through the Internet? Okay, thank you for this question on freewheeling, OT3, and the Scientology headspace in regards to this. So the OT3 narrative, or the materials of OT Section 3, have been available on the internet and confirmed by Scientology lawyers as accurate trademarked material that they've taken to court and uh, have tried to squelch and suppress and remove from libraries and stuff like that. And unsuccessfully, right? Information kind of does have this thing about wanting to be free. And uh, people are pretty curious. So this material is out there. You can see the whole thing. It is uh, posted all over the internet. And that's the problem because Hubbard says that this will cause problems, right? Even death. And um, to be specific about it, and I'm reading from... The actual OT3 material here. Oh, by the way, the other week I commented on Xenu being captured in a mountain fortress somewhere with an electronic battery. That's in here too. So I'll just read that as well. When through his crime, loyal officers to the people captured him after six years of battle and put him in an electronic mountain trap where he still is. That's the Hubbard statement on Xenu now. They are gone. The place, Confederation, has since been a desert. The length and brutality of it all was such that this Confederation never recovered. The implant is calculated to kill by pneumonia, etc., Anyone who attempts to solve it. This liability has been dispensed with by my tech development. One can freewheel through the implant and die unless it is approached as precisely outlined. The, the freewheel, auto running on and on, lasts too long, denies sleep, etc., and one dies. So be careful to do only incidents one and two as given and not plow around and fail to complete one Thetan at a time. All right. Now, if any of you guys understand what I just read, you've been watching my channel too much. All right. I, I, oh, that's an old joke. I won't keep using it. But um, this freewheeling thing is actually kind of interesting because it is a, a way for some Scientology OTs who know about this, who've seen this and read this, 
to rationalize or think through why it is that everybody's not dying after they read this stuff. And that's because they don't proceed to then try to run it on themselves. And it's the freewheeling, Hubbard says here, and I sort of stressed it while I was reading it, it's the freewheeling aspect of this that's supposed to kill you. So just knowing about it, see, this is one of these little minutia points, right? It's ridiculous either way you think about it. And most people think about it as, oh, I was just exposed to this information. And we kind of encourage that. We kind of talk about it that way. But the, but the technical truth is you're really supposed to start wondering and running it. And by that, I mean, in Scientology, when you run something, what that means is you put yourself in a headspace, like in an auditing session, where you are going and recalling specific moments in time and space that have happened to you in the past or supposedly have that were stressful, that were traumatic, that were, you know, where you were victimized, where, where bad things happened. And those moments are supposed to contain actual electronic charge that you as a spiritual being carry around with you in these charged incidents that you carry in your mind. And the mind is not you. You as a Thetan, as a spiritual entity or being, you're just a ghost. You're a soul. You're, you got nothing attached to you. You're not even matter, energy, space, and time. You're not a physical being. Your existence doesn't depend on the existence of matter, energy, space, and time. You exist independent of this universe. So you have this mind, and the mind is like a box of pictures, all the pictures of everything that's ever happened to you. And it's a running record of all the things that have ever happened. But some of those pictures are, trauma are traumatizing. They have this charge connected with them. And when you remember them or recall them or the physical universe now approximates that time back then, that charge comes leaping out and hitting you in the head and makes you do things and say things and, and think things that are not rational. And this is Hubbard's theory as to why we're all nuts and why there's war and criminality and insanity. And, and if we could just resolve this charge, then everything would be great. So I'm explaining all of this because what I'm trying to explain is that if you simply read the OT3 material, you're not necessarily pulling up all that charge. Some of it, but not all of it. But if you sit down with an e-meter, let's say, or not, and you start thinking about it, and you start trying to run it the way Scientologists run auditing processes, where they, they go through the incident, they relive it, they try to re-experience it, or remember the key parts of it, kind of run through the incident, right? Step one, step two, step three, step four, step one, step two, step three, step four, over and over and over. This is how Dianetics works, mostly. Scientology is sort of recall this and then go in an earlier time and an earlier time and an earlier time rather than going over and over and over the same incident over and over again. But the theory is the same. And the charge is what you're supposed to be handling. But if you just pull up an incident and you don't have an auditor there and you don't have an e-meter there, then the Hubbard's statement is you are freewheeling. You're doing it yourself and it's just running. 
And because of the nature of the implant and the incident with OT3 specifically, Hubbard says that it will auto, you know, you can get on this auto run and it'll just run you. And suddenly, you know, you open this flood door, this gate of charge, and it's just overwhelming you and you can't stop it. And your body withers and, and ends up getting sick and maybe pneumonia, et cetera, as he says, pneumonia, et cetera. And you die. Your body just wears itself out and dies, kind of like Captain Trips, you know, from that original Stephen King novel, The Stand. You know, you get this flu and it's a super flu and it just beats your body to death until you die, right? Of the flu. I mean, you know, the flu is normally something that is that, that kills people. It does. It, it could be fatal, but... You know, if if gone on unchecked, uncontrolled, unregulated, it'll kill you. Same with freewheeling this incident. So Hubbard says that's where the real danger is. But he's not letting anybody in on this because, of course, anybody could start freewheeling. Oh, I wonder, wow, body thetans, OT3, Xenu, wow. I wonder what that looked like. I wonder where I was then. Wow, well, let me think about that. Oh, well, okay, I can imagine myself in this place, and it starts going, and they're just sitting there on their couch thinking about this, and it just goes and goes and goes, and then they end up dying. That's never happened, okay? Everything I've just said is a total fantasy, but it's what Hubbard claims is true. It's what, they, it's what Scientologists think is reality. So, so remember, only about 5% Roughly 5% of all Scientologists ever even make it onto these OT levels in the first place. So, so we're talking about a small number of people. We're talking about thousands of people at the most, right, who are existing OTs on planet Earth right now. And um, that this would even apply to because of the exposure to it, right? So anyway... Uh, as far as thinking, um, sorry, not the exposure, but as far as who would be concerned about this problem of how come people aren't dying when they read the OT materials, very small number of people in the world of Scientology are wondering about this, okay? That's what I'm trying to say because they don't, most Scientologists don't know anything about OT3 and they're not even supposed to know that, it'll, that it potentially could kill you if you start, you know, freewheeling it. So that's the, even that's confidential information. What I read to you is, is the confidential stuff. No lower-level Scientologist has any clue about any of this. So they're not wondering why it is that people read OT3 and don't die. If they happen to, but let's go ahead and think, well, they happen to know that you're supposed to die or get sick or something bad is supposed to happen and you're a lower level Scientologist, well, why, why aren't they not dying? The answer you would come up with would be, oh, well, that's not the real OT3 then. That's not the real stuff. The stuff on the internet is squirrel Scientology is what they call it, right? It's altered, it's changed, it's modified. It's, it's not the original thing. It might not even have anything to do with the original thing. It's just a bunch of anti-Scientologists posting crap in order to make Scientology look bad. That's what the lower-level Scientologists tell themselves about the OT material on the internet. For at least that's what I've heard um, when I was in Scientology. So anyway, long answer. Hope that that gives you some uh, clarification on this, and I hope that that um, answered everything you wanted to know. Kara. 
I was wondering how you think the proposed UK ban on gay conversion therapy would affect Scientology. As so many have pointed out, we know they are wildly homophobic, but manage to hide the fact they feel they can audit it out and generally wriggle out of the bad PR. Do you think it's likely they will be taken to court over it, and how do you feel they will handle it? Okay, thanks for this question. And I don't really think anybody's going to take Scientology to court over this. Um, Scientology, and the reason why, is because Scientology does not promote auditing or any part of auditing as gay conversion therapy or that it's going to audit the gay away. That's not a PR line they use. They don't sell it that way. They don't talk about it that way. Um, what they do is they talk about auditing, handling the charge, like I talked about earlier, right? They explain that whole little process of, look, you come to us with aberrations. Now, aberrations in Scientology is a, is a specialized word. Hubbard said it comes from optics, the word aberration, but it really means to departure from a straight line. You know, and, and, and what Hubbard's trying to say with this is your aberrations are the things you're carrying around with you, the things, the way you think, the way you rationalize things. You, you don't think in straight lines. You, you, you know, you, you think in all these crazy ways. You want to go to, you want to go from A to B, but you end up going to C and then D and then F and then, and then nine and then X, Y before you get over to B, if you ever make it to B at all. This is how Scientologists think about people, and they call them aberrated. Aberrations come from, right, the, the, the stress and trauma of the accumulated past traumatic experiences that you've had as a spiritual being. So what's the nature of the charge you carry around with you? Well, that's individual to you. Everybody's different. Everybody's had their own experiences. Everybody's got their own charge. But how we address that charge is through auditing. And the auditing process is standardized from one person to the next to the next. Individual context-specific matters might be taken up with each specific individual. But the process of auditing is the same for each person. Do you see the defense forming here that I'm, that, that I'm describing? Because if you have this as the explanation of what auditing is... And frankly, what I'm describing right now is a valid explanation of auditing as it is delivered and done in Scientology. Then they have a way of, of sort of outflanking or outmaneuvering the charges that they are engaged in gay conversion therapy because they will tell you that is not what we are doing. What we're doing is we are applying an exact series of processes to achieve an end that doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. It has to do with releasing all that charge, freeing the person up, not having all those stress and trauma in their past. And they use different words for this. I keep using these two words, stress and trauma, because it's really the only English equivalents to engrams, locks, secondaries, false purposes, evil intentions, and all the other nonsense that they are thinking that they're handling when you are doing auditing. They have their own language for this stuff. I just use stress and trauma to make it easy to talk about it. Um, but that's the theory of it, okay? And this is the defense that they would use if they were charged with or somebody was coming after them for that. Now, that all being said, yes, they do engage in gay conversion therapy with auditing, and yes, it's wrong. And a case could be made if you could get the PC folders, because there's probably going to be notes 
And there's probably going to be directions in the PC folders of the person who's receiving the auditing that the person's gay, that they need to have it handled. It's an aberration. And we're going to do these processes and it will address that. They just won't fess up to that in public, you see, but it is in the folders and they do do it. They'll use expanded Dianetics. They'll use false purpose rundown. They'll use standard Dianetics. They have different approaches to how to deal specifically with homosexuality. There are not instructions from L. Ron Hubbard on exactly what process to use, though. Hubbard talked about it in more general terms and gave the case supervisors and the auditors quite a bit of latitude as to how they would approach each individual in dealing with this. But they, as I've gone over in the past, they believe that homosexuality or any sexual deviancy, as they call it, um, would come from or spring from your your trauma, your stress, and uh, and, the, and from the past, distant past, and in fact, not just stress and trauma, but actual evil intentions that you have towards your body, your species, the race as a whole, that you would be engaged in this kind of activity, or in fact, that you would be compelled to engage in this kind of activity, because that's how they think about it. You're homosexual or bisexual or de sexually deviant, quote-unquote, only because you are compelled to be by this charge that you're carrying around in your mind, okay? So that's how they think about it, and that's how that would work. So I, for one, would love to see a suit like that brought against Scientology, but I am pretty sure, given their legal shenanigans and the way they do things, that that would not be a case that would that would succeed. R.R. R. Smith, I've been wondering why the Church of Scientology would not let staff live in their org buildings. They are enormous and the staff would save money. Would it be out exchange? Well, funny you should ask this because I actually did live in the Santa Barbara Church of Scientology for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a staff member there because I didn't have any place else to go. I was broke. And, um, oh, yeah, I think it was after I had broken up with uh, with a girlfriend and we had been living together and I didn't have anywhere else to go. And so we ended up going there. Anyway, um, oh, no, because then we lived there before that, too. So, no, I was there for a while. The building was an old hotel, after all. And all the rooms along the top floor, which were auditing rooms, were actually rooms people had stayed in and it had bathrooms and all, you know, it was a, it was a hotel type accommodation. So, um, so yeah, I did live there, but generally speaking, me and my little shenanigans aside, uh, no staff cannot live in the churches now and they would not allow anything like that. Um, one, they're not coded for residential, so there might be legal issues. And two, um, they just don't want anybody living in the property, right? They do have guards and night watchmen and stuff like that set up to be there all night. That will happen or used to happen. I don't know if it's still a thing. Um, but they don't let people live there. And the out exchange is not really the point. I suppose it, it, it could be if it became a formalized process. But it's more about building ma image, maintenance, security, stuff like that. That's, those would be more the considerations as to why they wouldn't want staff members um, in the buildings 24-7. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. Are Scientologists afraid of graveyards or funerals for the fact that maybe that Thetan might get stuck to them? 
I've heard people say David Miscavige is terrified of being around children because of all the thetans they carry around. It might be possible that some OT Scientologists, who are the only ones who know anything about body thetans, might possibly have some fear about going to funerals or something like that. But I have never once heard any Scientologist express any reservation about going to a funeral or memorial service because of that. Uh, I wasn't OT when I was a Scientologist, so, you know, I would never have heard of anything like that anyway, except maybe by happenstance. But, um, but no, I've never, I've never heard of that. Travis, what's the most obvious scam cult out there in your opinion? For me, it's MLMs, multi-level marketing schemes like Amway, Herbalife, uh, any of these get rich quick. We have a business opportunity for you, you know, kind of kind of scams. They are so obviously scams. I mean, people who think they're going to go rags to riches in a couple weeks or months through some internet sales activity or through selling things, they're delusional. You're, it's, it's insane. You would never going to have that happen. No one gets rich in a couple months off the internet selling things to their friends on social media. I, it just boggles me that anybody falls for that one. I, I mean, I know a lot of people have. I'm not even like naming, I'm not, I'm not putting labels on people. I'm just saying to me, it's the most obvious scam. Uh, now, that being said, I know, I know exactly why people fall for it. So, so all I'm really doing is ranting here a little bit because I, I get it. I know exactly why it happens and it's rough. Matt Allen, do you think OT9 and OT10 will officially, quote unquote, be released in your lifetime? Yes, I do, Matt. I think that there will come a point probably in a few years. I mean, I, Miscavige has the full library of L. Ron Hubbard materials to draw from and release. And there's a ton of stuff that has not been released or, in, in true Miscavige style, re-released, repackage and re-release it because uh, he loves doing that. And there's a ton of stuff that is still, that is going to come back out after he's gone through it and vetted it and pulled all the Hubbard crap out that he doesn't like. Because that's what Miscavige is doing right now. He's He's been doing it for decades, is rewriting Scientology in his, in his own image. So, um, so OT9 and 10, yeah, that can come any moment that he wants it to. But he's that's the ultimate carrot for the existing OTs. And he can hold them in line and, you know, control them using that. So he's not going to give it up very easily. All right, that is our show for this week, guys. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me babble on here. I very much appreciate your viewership and your support, not just financial, but all around. You know, when I have a hard time and I let you guys know that I'm having a hard time, one for one for one, you guys come through for me. Let me know it's okay. Let me know that, you know, taking some time off or dealing with that is perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable, and you have my back. And... I don't know that I can express to you guys how much that means to me. So I'm ending the show by saying thank you a lot. Um, it really helps. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show this week. 
go ahead and send me any questions you have at my askchrisshelton at gmail.com email. And if you do want to support the show, please use the Patreon link or the PayPal links in the show notes. They uh, work and they um, it would be very much appreciated. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.